Lord, we come not to hear a man give his opinions. We don't come to hear someone give their thoughts. Lord, we want to hear you speak. Lord, would you speak to our troubles? Would you speak to our guilt? Would you speak to our anxieties? Lord, through your word, would you speak to us this morning and we, that we might leave changed people having heard your voice through your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, on the evening on September 25th, 2015, Thomas Eric Duncan entered an emergency room in Dallas, Texas. He had a slight fever, some abdominal pain, nausea, and headache. Nothing else seemed overly dangerous, so after some acetaminophen and giving a prescription for some antibiotics, they sent him home. However, three days later, he was brought back to the same hospital, but by an ambulance because his condition had worsened so severely. This time, as they questioned him more and sought to understand what was going on, they asked him, have you traveled recently? And he said, yes, I came from Liberia. Well, at that time, there was an Ebola outbreak in Liberia. And so they quickly moved patients away in the emergency room. And they then evacuated an ICU ward and moved him up there alone. And the next day, the test confirmed that he did have the deadly Ebola virus. Sadly and tragically, he died 10 days later. But then, two days after his death, one of the nurses who had helped him started having symptoms. And then when they ran the test, she had the Ebola virus as well. Then two days after that, another nurse who had treated him began suffering symptoms, and she also was diagnosed with Ebola. Well, people panicked. Fear overran facts, and everyone wanted to keep their distance. Thankfully, those two nurses did recover, and no other cases were reported in Dallas. However, while the events unfolded, people began asking questions. Well, should we even expect nurses to care for people under such extreme conditions? If you were one of those nurses, is it okay to call in sick, whether you're sick or not, because you're putting not just your own life, maybe your family's life at risk? Are there some people who are really beyond care and compassion anymore? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to be approached by two different people who have seriously ill conditions. And many people in their day thought they are beyond care and compassion. They're no longer someone that we should try to help. And yet Jesus is going to respond. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus has compassion. He has focus and he has authority. As we look at these verses, we're going to see the story unfold in three parts. If you like to follow along on the back of a bulletin, if you received one, there's the outline. Because first... In verses 12 through 14, we're going to see that Jesus touches the leper. Then in verses 15 through 16, Jesus leaves the crowds. And then lastly, in 17 through 26, Jesus forgives sins. But I'm going to read each of these as we come to it. So look down at chapter 5 of Luke, verses 12 through 14. It says, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. So Luke now transitions in his gospel to a man full of leprosy coming to Jesus. Now it's not that he had leprosy. He expounds he's full of it. It's covered his entire body. It's overtaken him. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with leprosy, but when most people hear of it, they think of what has been diagnosed as what's called Hansen's disease. However, the Bible uses the term leprosy to cover many skin conditions. It can be anything from psoriasis to ringworm. And the most deadly of those conditions is Hansen's disease. No matter what type, though, the book of Leviticus in chapter 13 describes what someone should do if they thought they might have one of these skin conditions. First, they would need to go to the temple, and there they would show the mark on their body, wherever it was, and the priest would diagnose it. And then, if they were declared leprous, they had to do three things. First, they had to wear different clothes, setting themselves apart. Second, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, to any person who was around them. And they weren't supposed to even get within six feet of any person. And they had to live outside of the community. Thus, being a leper condemned you to being a social outcast. People would purposely avoid you because they feared you might contaminate them. Thus, there's no more like weekly get-togethers. There's no more family celebrations or getting together at the holidays. There's no more being out in town and running into people because that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that they're going to run into you and then they're going to get what you have. And again, the worst condition of this was Hansen's disease, which caused a person to lose the sensitivity in their skin. Now, God made us with incredible skin. One medical doctor, Richard Swinson, writes, the body has 450 touch cells per square inch of skin. We can detect a smooth plane of glass from one etch with lines only one twenty-five hundredth of an inch deep. We can feel a pressure on our fingertips or face that depresses the skin a microscopic 0.0004 inches. We can tell the difference between a letter weighing one and one-fourth ounces and weighing one and one-half ounces, but not between 10 pounds and 10 and a quarter pounds. The difference needs to be at least 2%. God has given us This incredible skin that can touch and feel. Yet with leprosy, in the case of Hansen's disease, you begin to lose that incredible nerve sensation. No longer do you feel cold or heat. No longer do you feel cuts or caresses. Thus, having leprosy makes you a danger to yourself. Because your body's natural warnings of being hurt or removed, but also makes you a danger to others. Because you're contagious. So here's this man, the social outcast, and he comes to Jesus. But rather than doing what he should, rather than shouting unclean, unclean, he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. And then he says something very interesting. He says, if you are willing, you are able to cleanse me. If you are willing. Is Jesus willing? Does he care? 
How much do we expect Jesus to be willing? How often are we willing to help others? Are we willing to help if it fits into our schedule when it's convenient only for us? Will Jesus say, well, I would really love to, but this is actually me time. You see, I'm enlightened to modern views, and my love tank is really low right now, and so I need to go fill up my love tank first, and then I will come and love you. I'd love to, but this is me time. I can't do that now. Well, not at all. Jesus considered others more important than himself, and thus he does what would be the last thing that anyone in their society would suspect someone or expect someone to do now if you look in your bible you can see headings of what's happened before this if you look in chapter 4 at verse 31 you probably see a heading jesus heals a man with an unclean demon and there what did jesus do he spoke and the demon came out or in chapter 4 verse 38 your bible may say jesus heals many and in that he healed peter's mother-in-law by just speaking so when jesus wants something to happen all he has to do is speak when he wanted a universe to come into existence all he did was speak so jesus doesn't have to do anything but just utter the word he could do less than that if he wanted but what does he do he reaches out and he touches the man and he says i will be clean there was no need to touch the man but jesus does it out of his compassion now imagine this man's response you had been years since anyone had even been willing to come close to the man every time people saw him they just they withdrew in abject horror and disgust you know it'd been a lifetime it seemed since anyone had been willing even not to just come close to him but touch him but also that he would have felt it if they did yet now immediately instantaneously not only is he touched he feels it. He feels the touch and the loving, warm sensation of another person putting his hand upon him is felt. Now, you can only, we can only guess the emotions flooding this man as he realizes what has happened. But not only is he healed, but rather Jesus makes him clean, it says. Now, for those of us who've grown up in the church, we can hear these stories so often that we really just miss the astonishing nature of what Jesus did. You know, think about what Jesus didn't do. He didn't say, you know, I've been working in my lab and I think I've come up with something that will heal this. So here, I, I came up with this ointment. I want you to try this for two weeks. And then when I come back through town, I'll check and see how you're doing. He didn't give him any kind of salve or ointment. He didn't do any kind of ritual. He didn't cast a demon out of him. He just touched and spoke. And instantaneously, immediately, the man was completely healed. You know, Jesus' words and touch have power. But not only do they have power, but it is given because he cares. And he has compassion. Well, then Jesus commands the man to go and tell no one. But to go and show the priest and to follow the requirements of the law. And Jesus didn't want him to tell because he didn't come just to be a miracle worker, just to heal. He didn't want people to come just to get physical healing. But this man doesn't obey, and we'll see the effects of that in a minute. But Jesus goes and tells them to go to the priest so they can examine. And 
I said earlier, Leviticus 13 described what to do if you thought you had leprosy. And Leviticus 14 says what to do if you believe you're healed. It was an eight-day process by which the priest declared at the end the person was healed. And it would begin. Again, they go back and the priest examines them. And then over the eight days, they would have to shave various parts of their bodies. They would have to give offerings, have various washings, and bring sacrifices. And then on the eighth day, the rabbi would declare them clean and that they could enter into society again. You know, the fascinating thing is that in the days of Jesus, the rabbis thought that healing someone of leprosy was as possible as bringing someone back from the dead. In other words, they thought it was impossible. That's only something God could do. And that's Jesus' point. That's why Jesus sends him to the priest. Because, as he says in verse 14, he wants it to be a proof for them. He wants the priests to realize that God has sent someone to earth. God has sent his divinely sanctioned agent. And this part of the story is again vividly showing us the compassion of Jesus. Your compassion is where we see the sufferings of another and we seek to help them. You know, the amazing truth is that God is a compassionate God. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is not like the Greek gods up in the clouds, giving no care for those mortal beings down below. They're only there for our amusement or our fun. No, God has compassion. And we see that because here Jesus not only sympathizes, but he also acts. And for many, we might sit here and go, well, yeah, I mean, we know God's attributes. He's compassionate. I mean, it's kind of too mundane even to admit it, we would sometimes think. Yet consider the way we often act towards outcasts. Our actions often show that we think wrongfully, that some people are too dirty, too smelly, too socially awkward, too weird to love. And more and more, schools keep having initiatives to end bullying in schools. But the harsh reality is the more they push the more the rate of bullying is going up. We profess that we need to love, we need to be willing to accept anyone, except our actions show that we really treat some people worse than trash. You know, we say someone should go help them. You know, some program, some person, some government entity should do something for those people. Someone else should love that person, is what our actions show. But Jesus comes not only to one who is different, but one who is contagious. And he shows him love and compassion. He stretches out his hand and touches him. Now as we read the Bible, the stories in the Bible, and really stories even outside of the Bible, we often unconsciously put ourselves in the story. And we resonate with the hero. People say, oh, I love reading that book. That man inspired me to go out and be courageous. Or we read other books and we go, oh, don't be like that person will use that character to try to motivate others not to act in that way. I wonder, as we read this story, who did you associate yourself with? I think often as we read this story, we're prone to be 
Probably the people around Jesus. What is Jesus going to do? We're wondering. Except I think the Bible is calling us to see that in the story, we actually should associate with the leper. You know, the leper accurately depicts our relationship with God in three key ways. You know, first, it accurately describes our condition. Just like leprosy, sin has made us an outcast and unclean before God. You know, rather than being able to approach Him, we should have to do like Peter did in the story before and cast out, get away from me, I'm unclean. And like leprosy, sin causes us to lose our sensitivity. Just like the leper can no longer sense the right signals telling them that they're destroying their body. So sin destroys and dulls us to the seriousness of our sin and the harm it does in our relation to God. You know, we think we're fine, that, but the reality is, if our nerves worked correctly, we would realize the deadly, the desperate, and the dangerous situation we're in. You know, the leper in this story realized this, and thus he came before Jesus bowing, asking, begging, not just for healing, for cleansing. Well, this story accurately depicts our relationship with God in a second way, and that is that God is willing to cleanse us. Jesus shows us that. You know, the story before this, as I just said, was Peter with the incredible catch. But Peter didn't respond as we might think and go, this is wonderful. Look at my career. We're about to launch on a new career with all these fish. No, Peter said, get away with, from me because I'm a sinful man. You know, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Yet this story is showing us that Jesus, when we recognize our sin, wants us to come to him. You know, as one song puts it, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. There might be people who you wish would welcome you into their group, but they never do. When they have their get-togethers, you wish you would be invited, but you're not brought in. When you come into the room, you wish they would want you to come over, but they never do. They're not really willing to welcome you. Jesus, though, is willing and able Willing and able for broken sinners to come to him. Well, third, this story shows us the right approach to come before God. You know, how does it begin? It begins with our humility of bowing and recognizing we're unworthy to come. It's the humility that recognizes that Jesus is fully able and we're not. It's the humility that asks and doesn't demand. You know, Jesus could have said, What are you doing? Get away. Don't you know as a leper you're supposed to keep your distance? You can't do that. Back up. However, the leper realized his unworthy condition and trusted that Jesus would be willing and able to help him. And as we recognize the deep compassion that God has shown us, we are then motivated to go out and to accept and love the social lepers around us too. You know, everyone else may mock and ridicule certain people at your school or your workplace or your neighborhood. But you, because of Christ's compassion, go and talk to them. Others may want nothing to do with that person. And yet you, out of care 
and compassion that Christ has given you, go, I'm going to enter in when everyone else is keeping the six foot distance. Well, a person like this is not going to be left alone for long. And so the crowds start coming to Jesus. So let's look now at verses 15 through 16, where we see that Jesus leaves the crowds. Luke chapter 5, verse 15. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is not going to be a long section, but it's, I think, a very important one to note. How does Jesus respond when the crowds, the flocks of people start coming to him? Well, they come and he withdraws to go pray. Now Jesus, he's not focused on momentum. He's not trying to get wins. He's not trying to draw a crowd. In John 2.24, when the crowds come, he says there, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knows that people are the way of the type that one week they'll be shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And then a week later, be the same people who are shouting, Crucify! Crucify! And so, Jesus is not focused on the size of his followers, but he's focused on the smile of his Father. He focused on his Father's admiration not man's applause. He lived out Paul's words in Galatians 1.10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. You know, it's easy to think, well, of course, Jesus did this. I mean, what's the big deal? Jesus never sinned. Yet Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knew the desire to have people like him. He understands the pain that it takes to tell someone something that you know they're going to hate you for saying. So how did he respond? He turned to his father in prayer. He refocused on what mattered by being with him who matters most. And this is really important because what we're going to see next is people are going to start hating Jesus. They're going to start attacking him. And he has to prepare himself. There are going to be people that Jesus knows for him to stay high in the popularity polls. He's going to have to change his stance. He's going to have to start making different declarations about himself. Yet Jesus knows the Father sent him not to attract crowds or merely heal people physically. Now, Jesus came to do something much greater than heal people of physical ailments. Rather, as we'll see in verses 17 through 26... Jesus came to forgive sins. So let's look at that section, verses 17 through 26 of Mark 5. It says, on one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So Jesus didn't just stay withdrawn in prayer, but rather he comes back and he comes amongst the people. And now we see it's not just people coming to see Jesus, but the religious leaders, they're coming to investigate, to question, well, who is this Jesus? You know, they've not just heard of healings. It's most likely, I think, they heard of the leper being healed. And they know that could only come through someone God had sent. And so they want to come find out who is this. But Jesus is going to show them that he's more than a servant of God. Jesus wants to put before them the clear evidence that he is God. Well, on this day, as we just said, we just read that these men, they bring their paralyzed friend on a cot. And now, while he wasn't a social outcast, he was someone who they would have deemed really beyond health. There's nothing we can do. You know, there's no Romans Disabilities Act. And unless friends and family help, he's not going to be able to survive. Now, he appears to have wonderful friends because they bring him to Jesus. However, there's a problem. So many people are there, they can't get to Jesus. The house is packed. So the friends, because of their love for their friend, they try another way. They climb on the roof. Now their homes are built differently than ours. They would use mud or some type of brick for the external walls. And then they would lay beams or branches horizontally, resting on the end of the walls. And then upon the beams or the branches, they would then put several inches of clay that was soft, that would then harden in the sun into a firm plaster-like on top. Then they would use that upper area as sometimes storage or a second area, and they would put stairs on the outside from which you could access it. Well, the friends go up this outside access, and up there, they start ripping up the roof. They start ripping up the roof so their friend can see Jesus. Now, you can only imagine the thoughts of the people down below. First they hear some noise, and then dust starts falling, and at some point they probably had to just completely stop and back up. The noise was so great. Because they didn't just make some hole. You may have noticed they made it big enough to let the whole cot down. I mean, this is quite a hole. But then Jesus says something extremely interesting. Verse 20 says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And Jesus' words startled everyone there. Their faith was that Jesus had the power and authority to heal their friend, not necessarily forgive. The paralytic man and his friends were most likely completely shocked by these words. Tim Keller writes about this. He says, if this man were from our time and place, I believe he would have said something like this. Um, uh, thanks, but... That's not what I asked for. I'm paralyzed. Yeah, I've got a more immediate problem here. Keller goes on. But, in fact, Jesus knows something the man doesn't know. That he has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. Tim Keller goes on. The main 
problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It is his sin. If you find Jesus' response offensive, please at least consider this. If someone says to you, the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you. Your main problem is the way you've responded to that. Ironically, that's empowering. Why? Because you can't do very much about what's happened to you or about what other people are doing. But you can do something about yourself. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring the world that God has made. It's rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus says, that's our main problem. Jesus is reminding them and us that the biggest problem in the world is not out there. It's in here. You may have heard of last century, earlier in the century, when a newspaper in England posed the question open-ended, what's the biggest problem in the world? And numerous people wrote back in in the newspaper, gave their answers. And I wonder what you might say. If that question was posed today, what's the biggest problem in our country? Well, some people might say, well, the biggest problem is lack of education. Others would say the polarization of our nation. Some would say we don't pray in schools anymore. Others would say wealth is unequally distributed. Laws are burdensome. People are oppressed. And we could go on and on. One Christian, though, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote back a simple answer to the question, what's the biggest problem in the world? He wrote, I am. He said, I'm the biggest problem in the world. Because when I look at everyone, yeah, I see problems, but what I know the most is what's going on in here. And I'm the biggest problem with this world. And that's true for us. My biggest issue, your biggest issue in life right now is not what's going on with our health. Not what's going on with our finances. Not what's going to happen with our career. Not what's going to happen in that relationship. But our biggest issue is our sin. And yet, as I heard one person say this week, we're so focused on all these other things. We're like in a house that's burning down and going, hey, before we go out, how do you think it would look if we put the couch over here? And you're like, well, what are you talking about? We've got to get out. And they go, yeah, yeah, I know we do. But can we just move it real quick just so I could see? we got this major issue that we all realize we've done things that we shouldn't. And we don't want people to know about it. But then we go, you know what? That's not really that big a deal. we got other things in life that we need to be concerned about. Now, the point is not that God is unconcerned about your health or your finances or your decorations. We're going to see in a minute that Jesus does heal the man physically. Rather, the point is that Jesus deals with the most important issue first. He forgives him of his sin, and he does so for the man's good and to clearly demonstrate who he is. Now notice why he forgives. He forgives not because of how hard they worked for it, but because of their faith, the faith of the paralyzed man and his friends, because they trusted in Jesus. You know, the man was forgiven not due to his penance, not due to his, some kind of religious activity he got involved in, not because he did good deeds that outweighed his bad. His forgiveness came solely because he trusted in the words and work of Jesus. You know, they came most likely just thinking Jesus had power over the physical, but their trust gave them so much more because they were healed. He was healed spiritually as well. 
Well, the story then takes an interesting twist because verse 21, the religious leaders start condemning Jesus in their hearts. Huh, who is this man? Who, what kind of upstart is this thinking he can say his sins are forgiven? They charge Jesus with blasphemy. You know, blasphemy, if you're not familiar with that is, is speaking against God or his word or works in such a negative way that it's attacking God. And by their law, that was punishable by death. In this case, they know only God can ultimately forgive someone's sins. And thus, Jesus, by claiming to forgive a man's sins, is doing something only God can do. And at this point, the religious leaders are correct. Only God can forgive sins, because ultimately all sin is against him. When David committed adultery, King David, and then murder, when he confessed, he said in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now it's not that David is discounting the sin he committed against others. It's that the ultimate sin, though, is against God. So the ultimate forgiveness has to come from God. And we have potlucks every once in a while. And imagine we're over there eating and there's one piece of apple pie left. And I see it, but I also see Kara going for it. So in my love for apple pie, I shove her down and I go and slide it on my plate. And then Tracy looks over and goes, hey, Jeremy, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Well, Kara would be on the floor probably going, what? You can't forgive him. And he didn't even say I was sorry. She can't forgive me because I didn't sin against Tracy. I sinned against Kara. So Kara is the one I need to confess to and the one who has to say, I forgive you. Well, in the same way, our sin is ultimately against God. And so only God can say, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus knows that. And he's trying to show them that, look, I'm more than just any servant of God. I'm God himself. And that's why Jesus then asked this question. He asked them, well, look, which is easier to say? Is it easier for me to say, rise, take your bed and walk? Or is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? That's a little bit of a trick question. Because it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, why is that easier? Because what proof is there? No one can disprove or disprove it until we're before the judgment seat of God. So anybody can say, oh, I forgive you of your sins. There's no evidence of it. But if Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk, and everyone looked down and the man was still there, well, then there's clear evidence that Jesus either is or isn't who he is. So on the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Well, Jesus then tells them that he says this so they will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Now, Son of Man is a phrase sometimes used in the Bible to refer to all mankind, like you're a human. At other times, like in Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man is seen to be a man who's given dominion over all things and given an enduring kingdom. So as one commentator notes, Jesus most likely uses the phrase Son of Man because he's putting the question before them. By using it, Jesus is forcing them to make up their minds who he is. Is Jesus just a man or is he the man? Well, Jesus then talks in the third person, showing that he is the man. He commands the paralytic. Now he says, arise, take up your bed and go home. And the paralyzed man does every single thing Jesus just 
commanded. He arises, picks up his cot, and he walks back to his house, glorifying God. Again, Jesus cares about all of us, body and soul. Jesus didn't say, hey, I've forgiven your sins, and that's the most important thing, so don't really worry about that walking thing. It's no big deal. No. Just because it's not the most important thing doesn't mean it's a trivial thing. Jesus came to remove all the curse of the fall, and having healed, restored bodies is one of the wonderful blessings. Well, then in verse 26, the people there are filled with awe. Amazement overcomes them. Wonderful, extraordinary things have been seen. However, there's another response, and that's by the religious leaders. Remember, their charge here is blasphemy. And you may be aware that when they ultimately bring Jesus to trial, that leads to his condemnation and then crucifixion, the charge they lay against him is blasphemy. That is what they ultimately put him to death for. The same evidence was presented to all, but the response was either anger or awe, wrath or worship. And this story is driving all of us to say, to respond. What is your response to Jesus? You hear the religious leaders were right. Only God can forgive sins. But they were wrong about who Jesus is. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins because he is God. And so this is calling us to trust him and realize that in his power and authority, he declares that there's no sin, no amount of sin, nor any persistence in sin that will keep him from forgiving you. You know, many people think they've done too much. They've done it too often. Or they've acted too wickedly for God to ever forgive them. Yet Jesus delights in compassion. He forgives murderers like David and Paul. He forgives traitors like Peter. He forgives even prostitutes like Rahab. Now for many of us, we've been Christians for years, and yet we are here thinking, well, yes, I know he forgives, but I've done it one too many times. I can't ask him to forgive me again. Except the problem with that thinking is that the underlying assumption is, well, for the first 765 times, he actually kind of owed me forgiveness. But for the 766th, I've reached the limit. But the reality is, for the 765 before, we weren't owed forgiveness then either. Forgiveness is always a gift. And even now, come to him as he graciously holds out arms of forgiveness again. You know, one of the greatest ways we can respond and worship to Jesus is to be like the four friends and bring our friends to Jesus. You know, it wasn't convenient for them. I'm sure ripping a roof open was not their idea of what they were going to do that day. And I'm sure many of the people down below them despised them for what they did. Yet they wanted their friends best. And so they brought him to the best. And that's God's normal way of working. He normally brings people to him, not through pastors, but through ordinary Christians, reaching out and loving those around them. So seek friends who don't know Jesus and seek to bring them to him. Be willing to inconvenience your life for their good and God's glory. You may have noticed 
Or you may have been asleep, I don't know. But you may have noticed earlier that when Jesus asked which is easier, I said on the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But I never said on the other hand. I didn't make a mistake, I saved it for now. Because on the other hand, Jesus knew it would be immensely harder to say your sins are forgiven. Why did he know it would be harder? Consider again the leper. You know, if someone touched a leper in their society, they became unclean. Well, Jesus became unclean. Not necessarily at that point, but at the cross. Jesus took all the uncleanness, uncleanliness of the world so that he could say to those who would trust him, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders were correct. Only God can forgive sins. Yet they erred by not realizing that God was in their midst. You have the amazing God who in compassion bore the cost, the wages of sin, death. That is why he had to be a man who was focused. He was tempted to love the approval of the crowds, to be delighted by what's here on earth. And so he had to retreat and be alone with his father in prayer to be reminded what his mission was. His mission was to please the Father by bearing the penalty of sins for his people. You know, the compassion, focus, and authority of Jesus then compel us to live changed lives too. I'll close with this conclusion, with this story. You may have heard of Damien de Wuster. He loved this compassionate God. And so in the 1860s, he went from Belgium to be a missionary in Hawaii. Now at that time, Hawaii was not a resort destination. It wasn't a dream vacation. Hawaii was a rugged place. Many islands, hard to get to. However, the most difficult place there was a leprosy encampment. The local government didn't know what to do with those who contracted leprosy. So they sent them to a distant peninsula where they could not leave. No family, friends, or support was given to them. So the area was lawless, it was cruel, it was hopeless. But Damien wanted to help. He wanted them to know of Christ, and so after much prayer and consideration, he moved to the peninsula with the lepers. Through his missionary society, he taught them, he ate with them, he drank with them, he touched them, he built buildings, he taught them. He wrote, as for me, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all for Christ. Well, he eventually contracted the leprosy himself. And after 16 years with the colony, he died. You know, due to Damien's compassion and care for the lepers, their lives are drastically improved, both physically and for many of them, spiritually for all eternity. You know, Jesus came not only to be among lepers, but among rebels. He came in contact with something much more serious than Ebola. He came, ate, drank, touched, and prayed for those who were sinners. Yet the contagion didn't accidentally infect him, but rather he purposefully took the infection of sin, bearing its penalty and curse on the cross so that he can now look to each of us and say, your sins are forgiven. You know, Jesus has the authority and the compassion 
to forgive you, no matter what your actions or thoughts. So won't you worship and trust and adore this Jesus who brings forgiveness and then share this glorious news far and wide? Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed that your Son would have such compassion, such care, that he would enter this world. Lord, may we not just hear another story and go on, but may we be moved by that same compassion. May we confess our sins knowing you're eager to forgive us. Lord, we come through your grace, through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.